Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Please take out your Bibles. Turn to John chapter 2. Short passage this morning. Remember, there is no correlation between passage length and sermon length. We're going to be looking at verses 23 through 25. You can find the passage on page 887 in the Pew Bible. These verses, these three verses, get ignored and overlooked. I have one commentary that didn't even comment on these verses. Uh, These verses should not get ignored and overlooked. Uh, Read these verses in light of the big picture and purpose of John. Remember, the purpose of John is belief. 20 verse 31 is John's purpose statement. Why has he written this whole book? He tells us. But these, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In the verse right before our passage, chapter 2, verse 22, we read, The disciples believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The end of the story right before that one, chapter 2, verse 11, And his disciples believed in him. And then all the way back to the pivot, kind of the heart of the prologue, the beginning of the book, in chapter 1, verse 12, John writes, But to all who did receive him, well, what does that mean? He tells us, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So the epilogue of the book, believe, have life, believe, birth, believing begets birth. The prologue of the book, believe, become children of God. Believe, become. Believe in Jesus, become children of God. God believing begets becoming. Believers are birthed. They are born again. Believers are becomers. And now, in the very beginning of the narrative still, John is still on message. Twice so far, they believed, they believed. Our story, for the third time, chapter 2, verse 23, many believed in his name. So are these believers becomers? Are these believers born again? They believed in Jesus. The text tells us so. Did they become children of God? That's the question we're going to seek to answer today. And this is a relevant, urgent question for the church in America today. Ignore that big three there in your text. Remember, ignore the chapter break. Remember, the chapter break, the numbers are not inspired. And this one is not helpful. These three verses are both transition from the previous story and introduction to the story that follows. These three verses are the introduction to Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. Notice the end of verse 25. Jesus knew what was in man. Chapter 3, verse 1, immediately following, now there was a man. See the connection. See what John is doing there. These verses are preparing us for that, for Nicodemus and for Jesus' teaching on the new birth on conversion. We looked for a couple of weeks at the end of chapter 1 on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What does that look like? What do disciples do? Well, now we're taking one step back even further and answering the question, well, how does one first become a disciple of Jesus? And we know the answer. The answer is belief. It's faith. John tells us that again and again and again. But what does that mean? What does that really look like? And how can you tell? What does it mean to be born again? How does it happen? And how can you recognize it? 
Jesus is going to say in chapter 3, verse 7, you must be born again. Must. This is not optional. This is not some subclass of Christians. Uh, he's one of those born-agains. Right? That's how it's often used. It's like some different denomination or subclass. No, there are only those ones who are Christians, disciples of Christ. The only ones are those who have been born again. Because Jesus says, you must be born again. What does that mean? That's what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of sermons, which is important because I think many Christians today are conversion confused. I was thinking about this actually a couple of weeks ago on February 10th in light of the headlines concerning an individual of note that had passed away. Listen to some quotes from this person. What would you say about the state of this person's soul in light of these statements? What would you say about this person standing before the Lord in light of these uh, sentences? Listen to this. These are all quotes. Uh, He said, God is so awesome. No one can understand him. You just have to accept him. There was an inner restlessness that new wealth did not calm until I let Christ into my life. It was powerful and awesome, he says, of the experience, the experience of being born again. There I was, representing the pits of what is wrong in our society, and it happened. I'm not ashamed to say that I cried out for God. It's not a publicity stunt. I have asked God for forgiveness for anything that I have done to hurt anyone. I've been all the way to the bottom. There's only one way to go now, and that's up. I'm going to be hustling for the Lord from now on. Did you catch the language there? Accept Jesus Let Jesus into my life, some sort of powerful and awesome experience of being a born again, cried out to God, asked for forgiveness. Sounds pretty good. Who was it? There was a big hint there. Who was it? New York Times headline, February 10th. Larry Flint, who built a porn empire with Hustler, dies at 78. Those were all the words, direct quotes of notorious objectifier and abuser of women, Larry Flint spoken in 1977 after he was led to Christ, actually by President Jimmy Carter's sister, um, interestingly enough. Um, Flint went on to stand in front of a church in Dallas. He announced all this publicly and told the packed church, he says, that he owed every mother here an apology and promised to turn Hustler into a magazine that would extol godly living. That all lasted about a year. It was actually 43 years ago yesterday that Flint was shot and paralyzed from the waist down. And in an interview years later, he said, I, I got over becoming, uh, being a born-again Christian. I have left my religious conversion behind and settled into a comfortable state of atheism. Larry Flint had some sort of vision of God flying in his private jet, he says. He says he accepted Christ. He says he asked for forgiveness. He said he was born again to the watching world. He clearly was not. His life definitively demonstrates that afterwards. His public rejection of Christ and profession of atheism definitively demonstrates that. And yes, this may be an extreme case, but we all have personal experience with similar cases. You are thinking of someone right now, right, formerly professed Christ, maybe even baptized, maybe even a member of a church, one's excited about Christ. But now, what does it really mean to be born again? That's what we're building towards. That's chapter 3. But John has something important to show us first. Yes, it is faith that saves. But there is such a thing as a faith that damns. I'm using this word on purpose. I'm not using this word to be provocative. I'm not using this word to swear. I'll explain this word when we get to point number 3. But there is a belief in Jesus that Jesus does not believe in. There is a trust in Jesus that Jesus does not trust. 
Disclaimer and infinite qualifications. Again, I will explain further. Do not panic, but hear me out because this is important. You can believe in Jesus and go to hell. I'm going to explain what that means. I'm going to be very careful with my words. But I think that's correct based upon this text. You can believe in Jesus and go to hell. Got your attention yet? You're preparing your accusations of heresy. Let's read our text and let's see what it says. Because if what I've said is true, then this is eternally important. In this book that is all about belief, we've got to understand what biblical belief really is. You could be sitting in this room right now thinking you savingly believe in Jesus when you actually only damningly believe in Jesus. And so three points today that we're going to walk through, kind of building towards uh, the end. Uh, Number one, we're going to see that Jesus knows your heart. Jesus is going to make a remarkable display of, of who he is here. Jesus knows your heart. Number two, your heart can be believe, can believe and be damned. And I'm using that word on purpose because it's the word the text uses. So I'm going to explain. So stick with me. Then we'll look, number three, at the heart of that damning belief. What is it? What is this belief that Christ does not believe in? We're going to explain all of those things. So bear with me. We're going to walk through it. We're going to read the text and unpack it. What does the text say? That's what matters. So let's read it. Answering the question, thinking, processing. Do you believe? Okay. What kind of belief is it? Let's read. John chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. Short, but I want you to pay attention because this is important. And this is what God wants to say to you today. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. If you would bow with me, let's, let's go to the Lord first with a word of prayer. Father, please help me. Father, this is a heavy and difficult text. It's a heavy and difficult reality. Father, help my goal to not be um, provocative. Father, help my goal to be faithful to your word. Father, I pray that you would speak through that word. I pray that everything that I say would be true and in accordance with your word, because we believe that it is living and active. We believe that it is perfect. Father, we believe that you are speaking through this very word um, to us today. So I ask that you would work. I ask that you would show us Christ. I ask that you would show us the nature of what it means to believe in him. And I pray that you would use this to open eyes um, to our own hearts and to our own state and to our own relationship with you. Father, glorify your name. Father, magnify your grace as we look even at this difficult text. Father, please help us in this time, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, I want to start at the end of our text. I want to start with the heart, because we've got some repetition here. So look at it. Look at the end of verse 24. He, Jesus, knew all people. And then again, into verse 25. For he himself knew what was in man. So those are important statements. First off, as further revelation of who this Jesus really is. And this is going to get to the heart of the problem here. This faith that damns is in large part a result of a faith that fails to rightly understand who Jesus is. Again, obviously, if you get the identity of Jesus wrong, you've got the wrong Jesus. Therefore, if you're believing in the wrong Jesus, well, you're not believing in Jesus at all. So we must first establish identity. Who is this Jesus in whose name and in whose name alone life is found? Well, here again, we're being told 
that this Jesus is none other than God himself. John is going to great lengths to drill this life-giving truth into our brains. You come to Jesus apart from this. You come to Jesus as anything else but God himself. You're not coming to Jesus. It says there, Jesus knows all people. Where you see all people there in the English at the end of verse 24, in the Greek, it's just the word all. Remember, pas. This is what's called a substantive adjective, right? An adjective that stands in the place uh, for a noun. Jesus knows all things which would necessarily then include all people. The people is supplied for us in the English. Jesus knows all. It's explained further for us. Jesus knows what is in man. That's why the all is supplied. So Jesus knows. And this is big. If we're honest with ourselves and each other, we do not really know each other, right? I mean, we scarcely know ourselves. Jesus knows all. He knows what is in us. He knows us. Jesus knows your heart. And only God can know the heart. Some verses. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 39, this is Solomon's just wonderful, grand prayer to God at the dedication of the temple. He says to God, Render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only, God, know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Jeremiah 17.10, God will say, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Acts 15.8, Peter said, God knows the heart. Romans 8.27, Paul says, God is the one who searches hearts. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You are naked and exposed before the eyes of the one for whom you are going to have to stand in front of and give an account. So, John has told us very clearly from the very beginning in his first verse that Jesus was the Word, and as the Word, he was God. uh, John is telling us here again, Jesus is God. He is not some prophet. He is not some teacher. He is not some miracle worker. His significance is not his signs. He is God himself come in the flesh. The one that you must deal with is God himself. And as God himself, he perfectly knows your heart. I've talked a lot before about how scripture uses the word heart. It is not as we use the word today. We think head, thinking, heart, feeling. Don't do that. That's not what the Bible does. Um, Your heart doesn't feel. This thing in your chest just pumps blood. I like the joke. I use it a lot. If you feel something in your heart, call a doctor. Go to Ruth or Tabitha immediately. Um, You may be having heart problems. In scripture, the heart is not the seat of your feelings. The heart is the seat of your everything. The heart is who we are. The heart is our core. It is the seat of our thinking, feeling, and willing. Scripture does not make the heart-mind distinction that we make. And so when Scripture says that God knows the heart, that means that God knows you down to your core. He knows you as intimately as possible. He knows you better than you know you. He sees everything that you do. He knows everything that you think. He is aware of everything that you feel, conscious, subconscious, everything Jesus knows your heart. You are fully known. That should terrify you. Fully. At least initially. I do not fully know any of you. I do not even fully know Melissa. You do not fully know me, and I'm glad that you do not. Uh, There are things that I have thought and things that I have done in my past that I don't want anyone to know about. The idea of being fully known is terrifying because I know myself decently well, and I don't love what I know. You have things about you that you go to great lengths to make sure that no one knows about. Things that weigh on you. Things that haunt you. 
I had a conversation on Thursday with a man whose wife was basically forced to have two abortions a very long time ago in, in Russia, where there was not a lot of control and you kind of had to do what they said. Uh, he was just talking about how she carries that burden today, decades later, still regularly bringing her to tears. She can't let go and, and get rid of that, that burden. So honestly, you do not want your heart to be fully known by anyone in this room or by anyone around you. Jesus fully knows your heart because Jesus is God. Therefore, look at the beginning of verse 25. He needed no one to bear witness about man. See, we've seen that witness is an important theme of the book. Chapter 1, verse 7, John, not the author, the other one, is portrayed not as the Baptist in this book, but John the witness. Three times we see John came as a witness, a witness, a witness. We do not know Jesus, so we need witness to know Jesus. Jesus knows us. Jesus needs no witness to know us. He knows the heart of man. And what does he know in knowing the heart of man? We know Jeremiah 17, 9. He knows that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. He knows Romans 3.10, that none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. That's just two verses of, of what Jesus knows about man, about you, and about me. Not good, not seeking him, not righteous, none of that. That's what he knows about our heart, deceitful above all things and desperately sick. You could argue that the message of the Western world today is follow your heart. That's kind of the foundational core message of our whole culture. Follow your heart. The message of scripture is that following your heart is the very thing that has ruined everything. Because that heart is desperately wicked and desperately deceitful. And if our hearts are deceitful, then surely we can recognize that there's great danger, potential, that we are self-deceived. That's why we need texts like these. That's why we need God's word to do the painful, living and active, cutting down to the the division of joints and marrow, the painful work of exposing our hearts and examining our souls. This text painfully demonstrates to us that we cannot deceive God. But we can deceive one another fairly well. You may be able to deceive Mike and me. To become a member of this church, you have to sit down with Mike and I and we listen to your testimony. right? Because we do not know what is in you. So we need your witness to get to know you. Jesus does not need to listen to your testimony because he knows you fully and perfectly. You may be able to deceive us. You may be able to deceive others. You cannot deceive God. The one who matters the most knows you the most. You are totally and fully known. Jesus is God. Jesus knows your heart. And Jesus knows the heart of these people. And since, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things, your heart can believe and be damned. It's strong language. I know, I went back and forth on whether or not. Melissa was like, ah, maybe you shouldn't. I was like, ah, I don't know. And I wasn't sure if I should use it. But again, I'm using it on purpose. I'm using it correctly. Um, this is such strong language that we've made it into a swear, right? We've made it into a curse. I've been thinking a lot about the language that Christians use. I'm concerned about the language that Christians use. Damn has actually become one of the more minor four-letter words. Let me caution you against it. Maybe this is my internal fundamentalist coming out, but but hear me out. In elementary school, the the highlight of the year for kind of a nerd, I was a cool nerd, but a nerd, um, it was always the book fairs. You remember? I don't know if they still do those. Do they still do book fairs? Are there still physical books out there? Good. I loved book fairs. My parents would give me a little money. I'd pick out a book or two. Uh, For some reason, one year, around when I was 10, I think, I picked out a book titled The Eyes of Kid Midas. You can hear the, the play on the myth of King Midas 
in there. Uh, long story short, Kevin Midas gets some magic glasses that allow him to control reality. He says something, it happens, and chaos, of course, ensues. Uh, but for some reason, a scene at the end of that book just really lodged itself into my impressionable 10-year-old brain. Uh, before the glasses, of course, Kevin was kind of a nerd. He was, he was picked on. But then he, once he gets the glasses, right, everything changes. And so, in part, he's out to get some revenge against his bully. And towards the end of the book, in the heat of a very tense moment, he screams and he just kind of yells out at, at, at his bully. He says, he says, go to hell. And the ground opens up and the bully is swallowed in, in flames. That disturbed me immensely as a 10-year-old boy. Uh, that, that really stuck with me. What is it? That I am saying? What if there were glasses that you had on that actualized the things that you are saying? What is it that I'm really saying when I'm using words such as hell and damn? See, these words have meaning. These words have power. Uh, These words are signs. There are realities behind them that they point to, and these two point to the worst. The word damn means to condemn. It means to judge. It means to be cut off from God for all of eternity. So I'm encouraging you to be careful about carelessly using that word. I'm hopefully, carefully, and purposely using it here. This is a theological and biblical concept. Uh, Your deceitful heart can believe and be damned. Look at verse 23. Let's go to the text. Verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Right. So there's our setting. There's our context. We saw up in verse 13 that the Passover was the occasion of the previous episode. Remember the Passover celebrating the Exodus. God brings his people out. He offers the sacrificial lamb to rescue uh, the firstborn of his people. The, uh, The Jewish people are remembering and celebrating that. At the Passover, Jesus has just gone in, cleared out all the animals and money changers from the temple. Not as an act of cleansing the temple, but he is condemning the temple. He is saying, no more temple. The temple, important word coming up, was a sign. The temple was not the point. The point of the temple was to point to something else, Jesus. He's the true and better temple. The temple was where God was present with his people. Jesus is God present with his people. God has now come. No more need for a temple. So Jesus clears out the temple. The religious authorities in verse 18, remember they demand a sign. They demand proof, validation for his authority to do what he has just done. Nope. He gives them no sign. The resurrection, three years later, will be the sign. But now, here in the rest of verse 23, we read that at this Passover, keeps going, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So Jesus was not willing to perform a sign on command to satisfy the religious authorities, but it does seem that he was healing and doing what we see him doing throughout the other Gospels. And John tells us at the very end of the letter that this is the case. Remember we read the purpose statement, 20 verse 31. The verse before that says, Jesus did many other signs which are not written in this book. Well, these are some of those signs. John has just recorded a few of them. He's just given us seven, we think. There were countless others that Jesus did. And so the people in Jerusalem at this first Passover saw the signs. And then when many of them did, they believed in his name. Again, it sounds great. That's the whole point of the book. Believe and have life in his name. Believe and become. But I'm arguing that here what we actually have is believe, and unless something else is done later, believe and be damned. It sounds crazy. Again, I know. But look at Jesus' response to their belief. Verse 24. 
But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. John is doing something important here that the English somewhat obscures. Uh, Sometimes people will try and argue that belief and faith are different things in Scripture. They're not. It's all the same word. To believe is to have faith. To have faith is to believe. And it's all the Greek word pistuo. Uh, Generally, the verb pistuo is translated believe, verb, and the noun pistis is translated faith. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through pistis, through faith. You could just as easily, though, translate the verb as have faith, or you could translate the noun as believe. It's all the same word. And what's interesting is that we have that same word twice in our text, though you may have missed it, though it's maybe masked a little bit in the English. Look at 23 again. Many believed pistuo in his name. Look at 24. But Jesus did not pistuo himself to them. It's actually the exact same word. The English has translated as entrust. I think that's not very helpful. John is masterfully playing with words here. In effect, he is saying, they believed in him. Jesus did not believe in them. It's the same word. There is a belief that Jesus does not believe in. There is a faith that Jesus puts no faith in. There is a trust that Jesus does not trust. They believe in Jesus, and Jesus does not believe in their belief. That means that there is such a thing as a belief that damns. There is such a thing as a faith that is false. And we know this. It's all over the New Testament. This is going to be an important theme as we move throughout this book. John is going to go on to write a whole other letter, 1 John, to lay out the signs of life, the evidences of faith. In his gospel, he writes, that you may believe and have life. In his epistle, he writes, that you may know that you have believed and have eternal life. In Titus 1.16, Paul writes, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. See, there's this group of individuals who profess a faith, who profess Christ, who profess to know him with their lips, but they don't actually know him at all. And they show that by denying him with their life. There was some sort of belief, but it was not a saving belief. And James does the same thing. This is what we just read in James. Look at James chapter 2 again. Look at page 1012. I was like, maybe we shouldn't read James 2 publicly because people get confused by James 2. It's not confusing. James is not saying anything different than Paul. James chapter 2, page 1012. James uses this verb, pistuo, believe, three times in chapter 2. The last, the third use, is in the wonderful verse 23. James 2, 23, quoting Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed, pistuo, God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham had faith in God and was saved. But there are two other uses of the exact same word in that chapter. Look at verse 19. You believe, pistuo, God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe, pistuo. Same word. And shudder. Demons. Again, we moderns are too sophisticated to believe in demons. Um, Don't be so sure. Uh, Look around. Uh, Look at the evil in the world. Most of us have no problem believing in God, a, a benevolent spiritual being. Why would it then be that hard to believe in malevolent spiritual beings? Just read the news, study history. There are evil forces at work. And James says the demons believe in God. James says the demons have faith in God. It's not a different word. 
It's still faith. It's similar to the faith of our passage. There is a faith that is not saving faith. There is a belief in God that condemns. The demons believe in God, and they are condemned. You say you believe in God. Good. You do well, James says. But even the demons do that. The question is, what kind of belief do you have? What is the object of your belief? You believe, maybe, but is it the belief that saves or is it the belief that damns? Because Jesus knows what is in man. He sees the heart. And so Jesus is cautious when it comes to confessions of faith. Right? They confess faith. We'd have been like, yes, you're saved. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times. 30 conversions today. Jesus is cautious when it comes to confessions of faith. And he knows what is in man. He sees the heart. We don't know what is in man. We can't see the heart, the heart that is deceitful above all else. How much more then should we be cautious when it comes to confessions of faith? All that glitters is not gold. Jesus makes it clear here. All that is belief does not save. The heart can believe and be damned. So that then raises the obvious important question. What then is the heart of this damning belief? Point number three. We're going to be talking about this for the next couple of weeks. Uh, But is there anything within this text specifically that gives us a hint as to the true nature of this damning belief? I think there is. It's the end of verse 23. Look at it. And it's related to the signs. Many believed when they saw the signs that he was doing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on, you're thinking. Isn't that the whole point of the book? 2031, these are written, these signs, that you may believe, and in believing have life in his name. Didn't the disciples, the disciples just see his first sign up in verse 11 and believe in him? Yes. And what's the difference here? What's the problem? It's a, I think it's a misunderstanding of the purpose of the signs. 129, John the witness has said, Behold, the Lamb of God, look and live. This is a looking at and a looking to the wrong thing. This is a faith and a belief and a trusting in the wrong thing. And I think it all revolves around the signs. And this is really relevant for us today because this misunderstanding and misuse of the signs still abounds in many Christian circles today. An obsession with the miraculous and a dependence on the miraculous that is out of step with the scriptures and completely misunderstands the signs at great danger. John is very intentional to never call what Jesus does miracles. People don't give a great explanation for why that is. I'm wondering if it's in part because John is writing later. John's the last gospel, right? Mark's maybe written 30 years uh, before John, maybe even more than that. Maybe John doesn't use miracles because he's writing later once these things are no longer happening and once there has been time for the misunderstanding and abuse of these things to develop in the church. And that's just a theory that I cannot prove, just thinking out loud. But in the other Gospels, Jesus performs miracles. They're called miracles. In John, he does the same thing, but they are only and always called signs. And again, there's no contradiction or disagreement. John is clarifying and saying more explicitly what is contained in the other Gospels, maybe in part because some people are misunderstanding and abusing what is in the other Gospels. John is making the Synoptic Gospels point more clear that the miracles were never the point. So the miracles were never about the miracles, ever. The miracles are signs. And signs do not and cannot save. Look ahead at John chapter 7. Just flip ahead five chapters. I think this is an interesting account. Maybe this will help us a little bit. 
John chapter 7. Look at verses 3 through 5. Uh, Jesus had brothers. right? Mary had other children. Now, they don't play a big role in the story. James will play a big role in the story uh, in Acts after Jesus. But, but here... Uh, John's brothers teach us something about the problem. Jesus' brothers teach us something about the problem with the type of faith that is not saving faith. So his his brothers uh, want Jesus to show himself. Look at verse 3. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. And in verse 4, they basically say, show yourself. But catch specifically what they're saying. They want him to show the works he is doing. What works? Well, John 7 obviously comes right after John 6 uh, and the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus miraculously multiplies the loaves and the fishes. Chapter 6, verse 14, people saw the sign that he had done. Jesus' brothers, too, had seen his signs. They've seen his works, his miracles. They believed that. They believed he could do signs, and they want him to go, he wants, they want him to go do it for others so that others can see. They had seen the signs and believed in the signs that he could do them. I look at verse 5 of chapter 7. For not even his brothers believed in him. See that? Seeing is not believing. They saw the signs and it did not open up their eyes. Because signs don't save. Signs signify. Signs are not the point. Signs are pointer. This passage, signs don't save. The very next passage, the Spirit saves. It seems that they loved the miracles, not the man. They saw the signs, but not the Savior. And this is going to be a recurring problem throughout the gospel. In chapter 6, verse 26, after the miraculous feeding we just mentioned, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. You're seeking me. That's what we want people to do. We want people to seek Jesus. But there's a seeking Jesus that is not seeking Jesus. He says, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. Not even that. It's even worse than that. It's because you ate your fill of the loaves. They don't want Jesus. They want food. They want what they can get from Jesus. And then later in the same chapter, after Jesus gives some hard teaching, we read in chapter 6, verse 66, after this, catch the language here, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see, they don't want Jesus. They want ease. They want comfort. They want something that's going to fit into their understanding of how things should work. But catch that they were in some way disciples of Jesus. But they proved to not actually be disciples at all. But they turned back and they no longer walked with him, which, as we saw, is the definition of discipleship. It is to follow Jesus. It's to know and to love him. Here were disciples that were not disciples. There, too, then, is a discipleship that damns, a discipleship that turns out to not be discipleship at all. Their faith was one that focused on and was dependent upon the signs, not the Savior. But back, go back to John 2. Compare verse 23 to verse 22. Compare this to what comes right before it. These verses are side by side. And maybe this helps us draw an important part of the distinction between these two beliefs. So in verse 23, we have the crowd believing in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But notice the difference in 22. The disciples have seen what Jesus was doing. They have seen the ultimate sign. This is them looking back when he was raised from the dead. They've seen the resurrection. And they remembered what he said. They remembered his words. And look at the end of verse 22 there. This is fascinating. And they believed. Now we're specifically given here the object of that belief. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
See, they saw the sign, but they didn't believe the sign, period. They didn't believe in the sign. They saw what the sign pointed to. They saw the sign and then believed the word that the sign pointed to. The truth, the reality, Jesus Christ himself, the word made flesh. They didn't believe the sign, they believed the son. Listen, signs are good. This is a book of signs, witnesses, testimony that reveal Jesus' glory and prove that he is who he says he is and that he has done what he said he was going to do. But signs are always secondary. Signs are servants. Signs are means to get us somewhere else. Signs signify. The significance, the significance of the signs is that they point to something else. Right? Our family loves North Carolina. Right? New York is home. But North Carolina is where our physical family is. It's where green things are. And outside, uh, Nora thinks North Carolina has stars and New York City does not. So our girls get really amped up and excited every time a trip to North Carolina approaches. We have to deal with it for like two months before. It's got this almost like Edenic association in their minds. And whether we're crossing over the state line on um, uh, Highway 17 or I-95 or I-77, whichever one it is, there's always a big green sign. Welcome to North Carolina. Got the big state flag on it. And do you know what we never do? Now, some people do this, and it ruins my illustration. But we never stop. We never get out at the sign. We never run up to the sign and hug the sign and take pictures at the sign and stay at the sign. Why? Because the sign isn't the point. What folly would it be to get to the sign and then pitch our tent and hang out on the side of the interstate for vacation when the thing that the sign signifies... The whole of North Carolina with the mountains and the beach and our family awaits. Again, that's what is happening here. In stopping at the sign, it seems that they've missed the Savior. Here is the heart of damning belief. It turns out to be no belief at all because its focus is not first on Christ. It seems to be its focus is first on what you can get from Christ. You see, true faith seeks Christ. False faith seeks self through Christ and seeks Christ to get things from Christ that ultimately are only about seeking self. Everyone loves being healed. Everyone loves getting fed. True faith loves Christ. You see, they believed him, but he didn't believe them because he knew them. He knew what they were ultimately after. He knew the heart of man which is deceitful above all things. And so he knows that we are greatly prone to self-deception. You can seek Christ and actually really only be seeking self. And so you need to answer the question that Jesus asked back in chapter 1, verse 38. What are you seeking? And honestly, why are you here? You believe in Jesus. Okay, what does that mean? What do you believe about him? What do you believe him for? Does this belief demonstrate itself in behavior? That's all James is saying in James chapter 2. People get all worked up about James chapter 2. This is so confusing. It's different. He's saying something different. No, he's just saying that true faith, grace, works. It'll demonstrate itself. It will show itself in fruits and behavior. You have claiming that you have encountered the living God and that you have been moved from death to life. That changes something. You cannot, I cannot be in a relationship with my wonderful wife and not have been dramatically changed by that relationship. You are lucky you didn't know me 11 years ago. Um, in part, that's owing to her. 
I have been in a relationship with her, and I have been dramatically affected for the good by that relationship. Can we really, can't we understand that to be in a relationship with a living God of the universe, it's going to dramatically affect us and demonstrate itself in our lives and in our behavior and in our loves? Does this belief demonstrate itself in behavior? Have you, have you given yourself over to Jesus? Calvin summarizes the I know I'm right because Calvin agrees. Calvin summarizes the teaching of this passage with this. He says, their faith depended solely on miracles and had no root in the gospel and therefore could not be steady or permanent. Miracles do indeed assist the children of God in arriving at the truth, but it does not amount to actual believing when they admire the power of God so as merely to believe that it is true, but not to subject themselves wholly to it. Okay, you believe in Jesus. Have you subjected yourself wholly to him? Have you repented and believed and trusted him? Okay, you believe in Jesus. Do you... Do you love him? Calvin goes on. Their faith was absurd because it was exclusively directed to the world and earthly things. It was also a cold belief and unaccompanied by the true feelings of the heart. Therefore, when we speak generally about faith, let us know that there is a kind of faith which is perceived by the understanding only and afterwards quickly disappears because it is not fixed in the heart, the whole person. And that is the faith which James calls dead. But true faith always depends on the spirit of regeneration. John chapter 3. You must be born again. Okay, you believe in Jesus. Have you been born again? And so, again, church, there's nothing more important than this. We're going to talk about this for the next couple of weeks. Nicodemus is one such man who, chapter 3, verse 2, believes in Jesus. He sees the signs. But Jesus does not believe in him. He is the example of the faith that damns. But, but, good news. We need some good news. Good news. The faith that damns doesn't have to remain the faith that damns. As we're going to see Nicodemus again at the end of the story, seemingly, I think, now saved. Why? You know, only because of the grace of God. That's the only answer. The grace that saves. And so you know, I have to end emphasizing this. Yes, there is a faith that damns. There are a lot of people that think they are saved, and they are not. And the New Testament just tells us that again and again and again. And so we must preach this. We must get conversion right. We must understand the new birth, how it happens, and how to recognize it. Why? Again, not so that we can be jerks. Not so that we can be arrogant. But because life is on the line. Because we too were once dead in our trespasses and sins. Church, I lived this for a long time. I too once believed in Jesus, but did not have life in Jesus. And it was miserable. And God rescued me. And it was wonderful. We must understand this because Jesus says in Matthew 27, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So they recognize Jesus. They recognize something about him. They believe something about him. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, not everyone who believes in Jesus, this end of John chapter 2, believes in Jesus, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I think we can all surely agree, right? Church, we don't want anyone from Woodside to be among that number. We don't want any that come in contact, uh, that we come in contact with, to be among that number. We don't want to preach a gospel that is not the gospel at all. 
We want to preach the good news of the life that is found in Jesus Christ, of the grace of God that saves sinners, not because of anything that is in them or anything that they have done, but entirely because of what Christ has done for them to save them through his life and death and resurrection in their place. Yes, beginning point number one, he knows you better than you know you. He knows your heart, and yet he still offers you forgiveness and freedom and life. Enjoy if you repent and turn away from sin and self and believe and savingly truly come to him. It is only in Jesus that you can be both fully known and fully loved. Not because you're good or great, but because he is so infinitely good and great. And so in Christ, that which was once terrifying and dreadful, being fully known, now becomes comforting and delightful. Because I am fully known, and in Christ, still fully loved. And so we have to get this right, because Jesus tells us that there is something that looks like faith that is not faith at all. His whole first parable is making this point. Hey, that thing that springs up and looks like life, hey, be careful. That might not be life. Jesus tells us this again and again and again. There is a thing that looks like faith that is not faith at all. And its end result, if it is not saved and rescued by the grace of God, its end result is damnation and hell. And there is nothing worse than that. And so we must get this right. Because there is nothing better than God. He is life itself. He is the best being. He is the perfect person. And it is in knowing him that we find life. He is the one you were made for. Relationship is life. How much more than relationship with the God of life. The one in whose presence there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And there are people who do not know him as such. There are people who believe some stuff about Jesus, but have not been united with Jesus and delighted in Jesus. The faith that damns is the faith that comes to Jesus for any other reason than Jesus himself and the forgiveness and the life that is found in him. Do you know this Jesus? Do you love him? Have you found life and joy in his name? Do you believe in him? Is it the kind of belief that he believes in? This is an important warning and an important word and an important encouragement for John chapter 3. You must be born again. And good news, church, it's the Spirit who does it. It's God's grace. And so we don't leave with this. We don't stop. We have to stop now with this. But it gets us to that. And we see his wonderful grace that saves sinners like us. I was a possessor of the faith that damns for almost 20 years. I don't even, not less than that. I don't know how long. By the grace of God, he has gifted me and given me uh, the faith that saves. And so there's wonderful hope for all who will come to Christ and who will come to him as Christ. Do you know and do you love this Jesus that saves? Um, I will pray that you do. Let's close this time now uh, with a word of prayer. Father, help us. Father, work now through your word. Pray that you would do your a work of surgery on our hearts and on our minds, a work that only your spirit can do uh, through your word. Pray that you would um, be showing us ourselves, showing us who we are. Most importantly, I pray um, that you would be showing us who Christ is. You would be showing us his great love uh, for his people. 
Father, we thank you for the life that is found in him, the life that is given um, only uh, by your grace. Father, we want everyone um, to know Jesus. We don't want anyone to think that they know Jesus uh, when they don't. And so, Father, help us to, to walk that uh, tightrope. Um, Father, help us to be faithful to what your word um, says. Help us to preach and proclaim clearly um, that salvation is the free gift of God, um, that it's grace. Father, help us to understand what that grace is and what it does. We thank you that that grace doesn't just forgive us and shove things under the rug. We thank you that that grace brings us to new life. Thank you for that grace that uh, brings us into your presence and unites us to your son, Jesus Christ, and um, is a commitment and a promise on your part to make us more and more every day um, like your son, Jesus, um, the, the perfect person. Um, Father, we want to be like him. And so I pray that that grace would do its work in our hearts and in our minds. Father, for anyone in here who does not know Jesus, Father, save them. Um, Father, uh, use their word, um, use their sin uh, to give them great despair of self. Um, help them to see that their heart is desperately um, deceitful and, and wicked and sick. But Father, show them the Jesus who saves uh, sinful hearts and who gives new hearts to dead hearts and who gives life to all who come to him, Father, in repentance and faith. And so we ask that you would be saving sinners today and through the ministry of, of Woodside Community Church. Um, Father, our desire is not to know some stuff about Jesus. It's not to attend uh, church. It's not to feel um, better about ourselves. Father, our desire is to know and to love you and to find life and joy and peace in your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would accomplish that now in us and, and through your word on our behalf. Father, we thank you that you are the one who does these things. Uh, you are our only hope. And so we come and we pray to you only in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.